0: Well, good morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, chapter 27, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 62. Uh, As you're turning there, just want to wish you a happy resurrection. Uh, Excited to be bringing God's Word to you this morning. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 62, begins like this. It says, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is God's word. Now the resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in the history of the world. See, nearly 2,000 years ago, the Son of God took on human flesh and became a Jewish man. And after living most of his life in relative obscurity as a Nazarene carpenter, at age 30, after being baptized, he began a three-year journey around Palestine, preaching about the kingdom of God, teaching parables, healing the sick, and helping the demon-possessed. As he began his last week, Of mission on earth he entered the city of Jerusalem heralded as the long-awaited king by the crowds but by Thursday evening he had been betrayed by his disciple arrested like a criminal falsely accused by those who were really his pastors and abandoned by his best friends on Friday, he was unjustly sentenced, viciously mocked, brutally beaten, and shamefully crucified at the hands of Roman executioners because of the accusations of his own people. Jesus had been seen as a threat, a threat to everyone in earthly power, everyone who had position, everyone who was prosperous. About 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon, Jesus of Nazareth was dead and everyone knew it. The governor Pilate knew he was dead. The Jews who delivered him knew he was dead. The soldiers who executed him knew he was dead. And the women who helped bury him in a rich man's tomb knew he was dead. Jesus of Nazareth died and was buried. On Saturday, with Jesus' lifeless body safely secured in a tomb, the murderous Jewish leaders found themselves still full of fear They weren't sure that the huge stone designed to thwart grave robbers was enough to stop Jesus' zealous disciples from stealing the body and concocting some kind of resurrection story based on what Jesus taught. So they took extra measures. They marked the grave with an imperial seal and they appointed soldiers to guard it at night. But even so, on Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. Early that morning, battle-hardened, professional soldiers had pretty much wet their armor and run away after an angel descended upon the stone and rolled it away. Fearing for their lives, the soldiers enter the city and they tell the priests exactly what happened. And so the murderers then become conspirators as they pay the soldiers hush money and invent their own story about sneaky disciples and sleeping soldiers. And as Matthew stated, this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. You know, their story really is quite unbelievable, even more unbelievable than the truth, which was Jesus rose bodily from the dead and walked out of his tomb alive. Now, one of the greatest evidences to Jesus' resurrection is the radical change in His disciples. The resurrection is the event that transformed confused and heartbroken and fearful, cowardly disciples into courageous leaders and martyrs. And through their radical lives and many of their fantastic deaths, we see how unshakable their belief was in the resurrection of Jesus and that it gave them something more powerful even than the threat of death. That something was hope. You see, hope is perhaps one of the most powerful things we can have. And simply, hope is conviction derived from the certainty of something happening Hope-filled conviction can influence, even govern how we think, how we feel, how we perceive, and even how we act in the worst of circumstances. Hope has that much power. And Christian hope, in particular, is fundamentally different than any other kind of hope in the world. See, there's a... Very large difference between great hope and what I would call the greatest or greater hope. See, before the crucifixion, the disciples did have great hope. See, they had dreams and they had expectations based on what they could see and what they could understand and what they could imagine about the future and about what Jesus had taught. And despite Jesus' very plain language, what is... Certain is that they didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead because they never actually expected Him to die. Like other Jews, they expected God's King to arrive and to establish an earthly kingdom. As the first followers of the Messiah, they expected to share the reign with Him. They expected Jesus to depose the hypocritical religious leaders. They expected Jesus to overthrow idolatrous Rome. They expected Jesus to assume the throne of David forever. They believed this so strongly that they shared a Passover with Jesus. And as they did, they argued over who would be regarded as the greatest in Jesus' royal entourage. See, the disciples had great hope. And their past experiences, really, up until Friday, rightly led them to believe that everything that they expected would come true. Jesus had turned water into wine. Jesus had caused the blind to see. Jesus had helped the lame to walk. Jesus had walked on water. He had fed thousands of people with a kid's lunch. He had healed the sick, even from miles away. He had brought the dead to life. But all of their hopes were earthly. All of their expectations were based on their own understanding. All of their plans were really quite self-concerned. As Jesus told Peter, who had rebuked him, right? Peter had rebuked Jesus when Jesus first told his disciples that he would suffer and die. And Jesus' response to Peter when he said this is that you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. I think it's possible for many of us prior to this virus governing our lives and changing our plans and altering our expectations that we possessed great hope. We expected certain things in had every reason to believe that they would come to pass. And suddenly, they have not. Well, for the disciples, that was their experience. But then the unexpected happened. Within hours of singing with Jesus, wondering about their place in his court, all earthly expectations and hope they had was taken away. Within hours, they watched their king betrayed by a friend, secretly arrested, falsely accused. After a few more hours, they watched their teacher condemned before religious and political leaders. They watched him tried illegally. They watched him sentenced to die. And by morning, he had been stripped of his clothing, mocked, spit upon, beaten, only to have to carry a heavy cross to the hill where they would crucify him. Finally, the few disciples that followed cringed as Romans nailed their naked Lord to the cross to die like a common criminal. And they watched in horror as Jesus' life drained away. The Roman soldiers played games, gambling for his clothes. God's good plans, and they were God's good plans, scandalous plans, destroyed the disciples' good dreams that they had. You see, when we find ourselves in circumstances that we do not expect or ever desire, ones we never could have predicted based on what we have experienced, what we have imagined or interpreted as going to happen next, our first thought is this. This, this, this can't be right. This is, this is not how it's supposed to go then often we begin to question whether God may have failed us. Truly, just because men fail, and they do, and spouses fail, and they do, pastors fail, and churches fail, and governments fail, that doesn't mean God ever fails. If we're not careful when things do not come to pass as anticipated, we will ask, what is wrong with God? Instead, of asking what might be wrong with our expectations. When in accordance with God's will, the kingdom comes and it's coming falls short of your expectations. We must never forget that the problem is never with the king. There's nothing wrong with disappointment. There's nothing wrong with sorrow at least for a time. But if that sorrow or that disappointment or that disillusionment leads to this long-term devastation and life paralysis, it's possible that your ultimate hope was actually misplaced. That it was found in something earthly that given enough time or tragedy would be taken away. See, God uses these kinds of experiences, I believe, to draw close to us, to sanctify us, and to expose perhaps our true source of hope. It reveals whether our hope is based on our own reason or His revelation. Whether our hope is based on our plans or His promises. Those who find great hope in the things of this world are often characterized by great fear. Consider the Jewish leaders, the soldiers, even the disciples through Saturday. Those who did not believe in the resurrection, and that would include the disciples on Saturday, were governed by fear. Essentially, they were afraid of losing Whatever they had expected should happen. Tim Keller defines worry as not believing that God will get it right. See, when it appears as if whatever you had hoped for is not going to happen, we begin to worry. We begin to fear. And in dealing with that fear, We do many things, but one thing that we often do is sin in an effort to try and make it right according to what we believe. See, the enemy, our flesh, and the world offers to save, even to give hope, at least temporarily. But when that idol or that thing that we hope will save us from the hell that we imagine we will be in without it, when our greatest fears become realized and our greatest desires and plans become nothing, that's when we find ourselves in what can be best described as a great hopelessness. In Man's Search for Meaning, which is written by Viktor Frankl, he was a survivor of Auschwitz in the Holocaust during World War II. He wrote a, an amazing book about how people could survive in this kind of environment. And he gave an for his own survival. And one thing he said was this, those who know how close the connection is between the state of mind of a man His courage and hope or lack of them and the state of immunity in his body will understand that the sudden loss of hope can have a deadly effect. Hope. Great hopelessness is what the disciples began experiencing on Friday night into Saturday. And we know this. We see all the disciples flee. And they fled as other men buried their Savior. They had followed Jesus faithfully for three years and they were not to be found even after Jesus had died. On the cross, their expectations and any hopes they may have had died also. Perhaps they got together on Saturday. Maybe they sat alone. I imagine some Weeped in despair. Some probably shook their fists in anger. But I think that most of them probably sat silently staring into the distance in shock. What just happened? How how could we have been so wrong? Have the last three years of our lives been a total waste? What am I supposed to do now? Sound familiar? Saturday was likely really depressing, and it's just characterized by the sense of hopelessness. You know, the absence of hope is as powerful as its presence, and we see the hopelessness just begins to transform these disciples, who at the beginning of the week, were very bold and excited and joyful. Deep conviction gave way to doubt. Close community gave way to isolation. Optimism gave way to antagonism. And this is no more evident than in one of the disciples named Thomas. The detailed story of Thomas can be found in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And at that time, we read that a resurrected Jesus appears to ten of his disciples. Judas is no longer with them. He has hung himself. And these ten disciples are gathered in fear of the Jews. And it's Sunday evening. Or late afternoon, and some women have reported seeing Jesus, but the disciples are still hiding behind locked doors, unsure and scared. And then the resurrected Jesus comes and stands among them. And John notes that Thomas is not there. The Bible doesn't say why Thomas is not there or where he is, but he is certainly not with his brothers and not with them when they first meet the risen Lord. So the next day, the disciples run to find him. And they tell him, look, we've we've seen the Lord. He is alive as you are. But Thomas is cold. His response to them sounds like someone without hope. Saying something like this. Whatever. Jesus is dead. Maybe not to you, but he is to me. God didn't come through for me. It's over, guys. I gave him three years of my life and he didn't do what I wanted him to do or I thought that he would do. I'm so glad that Jesus showed up for you, but he hasn't shown up for me. Why didn't he wait for me to arrive? Why didn't he come and find me? Why isn't he showing up right now? You know what, guys? Unless I see the nail marks on his hands and I put my finger inside his side where the spear went in, I will never believe. You see, when Jesus died, all of Thomas' hope had died with him. And if we're honest, I think in the midst of our own despair when all of our expectations have been dashed and what we desired most did not come to pass or what we didn't desire most did we would probably sound the same. And if we're honest, those who have interacted with Jesus, those who are very hopeful almost irritate us. Thomas is waiting for God to prove that his plan is better. And isn't that the core of it? We think we know better than God. As you see this virus ravaging the world, ravaging our community, ruining our plans, causing us to to reorient our lives in so many different ways, we ask God, really, this is your plan? I've got a better idea, God. And Thomas is just like that. He trusts more in what he desires, more than even what Jesus has promised. Well, here's the harder part. It would be another week before Thomas's great hopelessness would actually give way to greater hope. As most of the disciples rejoiced and worshiped, Jesus let Thomas stay in his despair. I imagine his bitterness grew as did his antagonism toward his joy-filled brothers who wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. And then somehow they convinced Thomas to gather with them. And Jesus appears again. And this time, he addresses Thomas's heart directly. He says, here I am, Thomas. I heard you, Thomas. Touch me and believe, Thomas. And as Thomas touches Jesus, he's moved to worship. In response, Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and believe. See, that moment would transform Thomas from this hopeless cynic into a hope filled preacher and martyr. Thomas is said to have traveled as far as China to preach the gospel and was martyred by a lance and buried in India. You go, what what changed? He had a new and greater hope. See, a greater hope is what characterizes all men and women. Who meet Jesus face to face? They no longer hoped in the things of this world. They didn't hope in their own goodness and their own strength and their own wisdom. They hoped in Jesus, regardless of the circumstances. It could be said they hoped against hope. Paul uses this phrase in Romans chapter 4 to describe Abraham and the hope that he had when he first heard the promise of God. See, Abraham was 99 years old and he was married to a barren old woman. And God made him what sounded like a pretty ridiculous promise. But the scriptures say in Romans 4 verse 18 that he in hope believed against hope. An awesome phrase. And explains He believed hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, right? What he saw, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Paul writes, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now hear what Paul says in verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Saying, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. You see how it's connected to the resurrection? Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The foundation and the source of our hope is found in the resurrection of Jesus. See, the truth of the resurrection gives us hope when there is no reason to reasonably have it. When reality falls short of expectations, the Christian does not ask, what am I going to do now? But the Christian says, what is God doing now? The world's hope is based on what is seen. Christian hope is based on what is unseen. The world's hope is based on what can be reasoned. Christian hope is based on what is revealed. The world's hope is based on things that can be lost, but the Christian hope on that which can never be taken away even in death. A greater hope is a hope that sees beyond the loss of Friday, gets you through the depression and disillusionment of Saturday, and fills you with the joy of life and expectation of Sunday. It's the hope in a living Savior who never ceases to declare that even if you lose everything you have in the world, he says, I will will never lose you. The resurrection gives me hope to be believed when there is no hope to be seen. I'm not hoping in my circumstances, but his promises. I don't know about you, but I'm not hoping in my goodness, but his grace. I'm not hoping in my power, but in his sovereignty. I'm not hoping in my understanding, but in his wisdom. I'm not hoping in my relationships, but in his love. I'm not hoping even in this life, but in my future resurrection with him. Resurrection gives me hope to conquer my sin. It gives me perspective for all my disillusionment. The resurrection gives me strength to endure my suffering. The resurrection gives me joy even to face my death. If Jesus is dead, if he's still dead, and the resurrection is this fabricated story, then sin is still condemning. And suffering has no meaning. And death is terrifying. If Jesus is dead, I don't know what there is to look forward to. Because this is all there is. But the truth is, the fact, the most important fact in history is that Jesus Christ is alive, that he did rise from the dead, and that there's infinitely more than this, and that there's everything to look forward to, that there's nothing to lose and everything to gain. Jesus is alive, and the empty tomb reminds us that nothing can take away our hope. Not time, not poverty, not hardship, not sin, not persecution, not even death. If our hope is truly in him. The power of our hope is greater than every possible unfulfilled expectation in this life. Ours is, as the Apostle Peter says, a living hope talks about this living hope, not a dead hope, but a living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that empowers us, that truth, that reality, empowers us to endure all things. Hear the Apostle Peter's words from 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this, in this reality, founded on the resurrection, in this truth that we have an inheritance waiting for us, that this life is not all there is, that Jesus is going to return one day and restore all things. In this, we rejoice. But he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And haven't we all been grieved? so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, that faith in the truth of the resurrection may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ as we declare, your plan was better. Your plan was best. Peter ends with saying, though you have not seen him, Remember what Jesus said to Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you're not listening or you're listening this morning, and you don't know Jesus, I compel you to come to him. I compel you to believe that not only did he die on the cross for your sins, to take away your guilt and all of your shame, but that he rose from the dead to give you a new life. See, today, there'll be two kinds of people people that respond to this message. You either leave this message fearful or joyful, doubtful or confident, hope-filled or hopeless. And the difference between those two is whether or not you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is the living Lord and you will believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That is what Easter is about. My prayer is that you will give yourself to the Lord or if you already have, that you will find a greater hope in him that can never be taken away. I'm going to close this in prayer. Happy Easter. Heavenly Father, we praise you. For your ways are above our ways. Your thoughts are above our thoughts. And we confess, Lord, that as we see this world and our lives unfold differently than we expect, in ways perhaps that we never wanted or desired, Lord, we'd confess our fear. We confess our disillusionment. We confess our misplaced hope, Lord. Lord, would you help us to trust you? And would you help us to found that trust in your promises, trust in your better plans, trust in your sovereignty on the truth and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Would you take that truth and not just keep it in our heads, but implant it into our hearts so that we will be a person and a people who live differently than the world, differently than anyone else because we believe there's a better country yet to come. And the resurrection proves that. Lord, we pray that your name will be glorified this morning across this community and beyond and that the resurrection of Jesus Christ will be proclaimed boldly as the greatest hope that we can find in this life and the next. It is in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.